Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, welcome to New Books and Buddhist Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm Luke Thompson, the host of the channel. Today I'm going to be speaking with Mahir Shahar about India in the Chinese Imagination, Myth, Religion, and Thought, published by the University of Pennsylvania Press in 2014. Mahir Shahar co-edited this volume with John Kieschnick. In this volume, 11 scholars, including the two editors, examine the Chinese reception of Indian ideas and myth, and address Chinese attempts to recreate India within the Central Kingdom. Beginning with Victor Mayer's argument that it was Buddhist theories about reality that allowed fiction to flourish in China, and ending with Stephen Bokenkamp's study of celestial scripts that Taoists created in response to the appearance of Sanskrit and the Devanagari script in China, the volume focuses primarily on the 4th to 10th centuries, but addresses dynamics that were at play both before and after this 6th century period. While many previous studies that address the impact of India on China do so by focusing on the Chinese transformation of Buddhism and on the degree to which Chinese Buddhism retained this or that Indian feature, this volume differs in that it looks at the influence of Indian thought beyond the confines of Buddhism proper. Mahir Shahar and Bernard Faure's respective contributions are good examples of this, as they demonstrate that some of the Indian deities and demons who came to China with Tantric Buddhism exchanged their Buddhist robes for Taoist ones or escaped into the wider world of Chinese religious thought and practice. Another central theme of the book is the way in which Chinese turned to Indian models for religious and political ends, or, in other cases, attempted to recreate India within China. Shijiru, for example, explains how a 10th century king of Wuyue sought to manufacture and distribute 84,000 stupas, a clear emulation of the great Indian king Ashoka. In addition to the, the aforementioned scholars, the volume contains chapters by Yamabe Nobuyoshi, Yederong, the late John McRae, Robert Scharf, and Kristen Moliere. This book will be of particular interest to those wanting to learn more about Indian myth in East Asia, the Chinese reception of Indian ideas and symbols, the interaction between Taoism and Buddhism, the adapting of Buddhist monasticism to Chinese familial organization, Bodhidharma, the influence of Buddhism on Chinese literature, and the Chinese response to Buddhist doctrinal dilemmas. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to New Books in Buddhist Studies. Today I'm with uh, Mahir Shahar to talk about India in the Chinese Imagination, Myth, Religion, and Thought, a book he co-edited with John Kieschnick and which was published by the University of Pennsylvania Press in 2014. Mahir Shahar is professor of Chinese studies in the Department of East Asian Studies at Tel Aviv University. His research focuses primarily on the interplay between Chinese religion and literature, the history of Chinese martial arts, Chinese esoteric Buddhism, and the influence of Indian mythology on Chinese deities and thought. He is the author, co-editor, or translator of six books in both English and Hebrew. Mahir Shahar, welcome to the show, and thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. Thank you very much. Um, so, as is usual for the show, I was wondering if you could just begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself, uh, where you're from, and how you came to the study of China. So, um, as you know, I'm Israeli. Mm-hmm. I was born and raised in Jerusalem. 
And I think I chose Chinese studies as a major, as an undergraduate at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, not because I knew anything about China, but because I knew nothing. Mm. I wanted an adventure. I wanted to learn to study a culture with which I was not familiar. I will perhaps mention and give honor to my parents. My father, he passed away several years ago, was a novelist. Uh, his name was David Shahar, and he wrote novels in Hebrew. And my mother, I wish her many more years of happiness and productivity. My mother is a historian, Shulamit Shahar, a medieval historian, a historian of Christian Europe. Mm-hmm. So as I grew up around the dinner table, I heard a lot about Judaism and Hebrew literature and European history. So I can't say I'm an expert, but I heard about it. Uh, I'm familiar, I guess. And just because I'm familiar with European culture or Jewish culture or Hebrew culture, I found it boring. <laughs> I wanted something, you know, I wanted to learn something I know nothing about. I wanted an adventure. So I chose the furthest thing from Israel of the time that I could think of, which was China. Uh, in other words, I haven't read the Analects as a boy. <laughs> Being influenced and decided to, to learn about uh, China. And I think I never met a, chi- a person, a Chinese person, before college, before... Uh, I never met a Chinese person. Mm-hmm. So uh, I chose it, you know, just because it was very far away. I see. But, and uh, I can tell you a, a funny memory I have. You know, in Israel, we do the army before going to college. Right. So I, I made this decision. I had this idea that I want to study China and then later travel to China uh, uh, during my last year of military service. And I took a day off from the army and went to the Hebrew University to enlist, to audit a class, mm-hmm. a class on China. And so it happened that the day I arrived to the university, there was a professor there. His name was Vitali Rubin. He was a Jew from Russia, an emigre, a recent emigre to Israel. He came from Russia to Israel, and he was an expert on Confucianism. And I audited this class, I entered this class, and there was only one student there, (laughs) one Israeli student, and myself, the soldier I came, you know, and the professor. And his Hebrew was not very good, he just came to Israel. And he had on the desk, he had the analects in Russian and in Chinese, and he had it in, in Hebrew. Someone translated the dialect into Hebrew many years before. Wow. So in fact, and so he was reading it in these three languages, and I realized that as I was sitting there, that in fact he was learning Hebrew during the class. Mm-hmm. He was using the student, the other student in the class, and myself, the guest, to, to learn Hebrew. <laughs> He was learning Hebrew through the Hebrew translation of the Analect, with which he was familiar. Wow. So, anyway, he was a great scholar, but uh, that was my first encounter with, with Chinese studies. Wow, great. Um, so, how did you um, come to focus specifically on Chinese perceptions of India and Indian myth, uh, thought, and religion in China? Um, since this following began as a conference, the better question might be why or how did you come to gather a group of scholars together for the purpose of addressing uh, these questions, the sort of... <laughs> sure. Sure. I think I, I'll tell you when I, when, I, when I was an undergraduate at the Hebrew University and I was taking courses on China, so what we were really usually taught, you know, you begin with Confucianism, yes? Mm-hmm. And I admire Confucianism like all of us. It's a great ethical system. But I, I confess I never found it very attractive or very, how should I put it? At the same time that I was studying China and Confucianism, I was taking courses at the Hebrew University with a great scholar of Indian studies. His name is David Shulman. 
Mm. He's a great expert on Indian mythology, especially on Indian literature of southern India, in Tamil and Telugu. And I was taking these courses with him. They were minor, not my major. And I always found India more interesting than China. <laughs> I was even contemplating leaving Chinese studies and going to Indian studies because Indian myths seem to me so fascinating. I mean, the Indian, it seemed to me that the Indians dare write what we don't dare dream. Mm. Such, such this voluptuous world of the supernatural, all these gods and demons and the outrageous adventures they have and the libido, you know, the sex of the Indian god is so striking. Mm. So I was very interested in India. And uh, it took me many years to find in China the same uh, fascinating world of the imagination. For example, in novels such as Journey to the West, the novel Journey to the West, you know, it's so, mm-hmm. such a fascinating novel with so many demons and gods. And of course, it took me many years before I encountered the living Chinese popular religion, before I, you know, started visiting Chinese temples in Taiwan, and I was really struck by all these statues of the gods. So it took me many years before I was convinced that China is as interesting as India, mm. <laughs> for me, for me personally. Uh, and um, I guess uh, after many years, you know, I, I wrote about the Chinese martial arts, I wrote a book about the Shaolin Temple and about the Chinese gods. And finally, this project really brings together my two loves, the love of Indian culture, which I harbored since my undergraduate years mm. with David Schulman, and the love of China. And um, as it happens, my co-editor, who is also my good friend, uh, John Kishnick, as you know, he wrote a magnificent book called uh, The Impact of Buddhism on Chinese Material Culture. He had been very interested in the impact of, in the role of Buddhism in bringing Indian civilization to bear upon Chinese culture in general, not on Chinese Buddhism, mm-hmm. but Chinese material culture. You know, I'm sure you read his book. So, for example, even the the fact that Chinese are sitting on chairs right. rather than crouching on mats, this is because of Buddhism, or tea, we assume that tea is a, such a Chinese thing, but actually the culture of drinking tea was introduced to China by Indian Buddhist monks. So he came to it to this project from the impact of Buddhism or of Indian culture through Buddhism on Chinese material culture. I was interested in the impact of the Indian supernatural mm. through the views of Buddhism on Chinese religion, on Chinese literature, how the gods were tra- transmitted from India to China. And uh, we started talking about it, and we arranged a conference. We brought many scholars who were interested in, uh, broadly, in the, uh, the way India influenced the Chinese creative imagination. Mm-hmm. Not only Buddhism, but Chinese literature at large, Chinese Taoism, Chinese popular religion at large. In other words, the, the book is not concerned only with how Buddhism was transmitted from India to China, but rather the role of Buddhism in bringing Indian civilization at large to influence Chinese civilization at large. So these are some of the scholars we brought. Others uh, were more concerned in the way uh, in which the Chinese recreated India within China's borders. Mm -hmm. So the Chinese were so fascinated by India that they brought India to China. I would give just one, if, if you allow me, one small example. I'm not mm-hmm. sure it, it even mentioned, it is even mentioned in the book. Uh, there is, you know, in China, a city called Hangzhou, 
and uh, Hangzhou was a very important city with many temples, many Buddhist temples, and there is a magnificent small mountain outside of the city. The mountain is called Fei Lai Feng, meaning literally the mountain that came flying. This mm-hmm. is what the name means in Chinese. And this mountain is in fact the Great Harakuta, the very mountain on which in India, the Buddha preached uh, the famous sutras of the Mahayana, or many of them. So that's that, 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 Chinese. That's a mm-hmm. uh, uh, vulture peak. Yes, the right. vulture peak. Okay. Exactly, the Vidakuta is a vulture peak. So, in fact, the Chinese they identified the sacred geography of India within their own borders. A little bit like New York, yes, where you are sitting at the moment, <laughs> which is like York in England, in America. So the, the, the Chinese uh, transferred India into China. Hmm. Uh, this, by the way, happens also with the Indian gods. Uh, if I give just one example, Vaishravana or Kubera, he has several names in Sanskrit, He's a very important god in Hinduism and then a god indeed in Indian Buddhism. He was identified in China with a historical Chinese general called Li Jing, who was probably a devotee. The historical Li Jing, Chinese Li Jing, was probably a devotee of this Indian god. But what we find in later Chinese literature is that the Indian god, the Chinese general is identified as an incarnation of the Indian gods. So what we see is, both geographically and in terms of the gods, they were all relocated to China, identified with Chinese figures or relocated geographically to China. So I guess that's what the volume is broadly speaking about. Sure. So the so the book contains 10 chapters, and each one is by a different scholar, uh, and the chapters are grouped under, or, are grouped under three headings or divided into three sections. And all mm-hmm. this is preceded by an introduction uh, written by John Kishnick and you, I assume. Um, uh, and uh, so I was uh, – the first question I want to ask before we get into the content of the book itself is just uh, whether you um, envision this book as part of a uh, longer tradition of uh, the study of, of uh, sort of Indian influence on China – Definitely, yes. The, the book stands in a long tra- scholarly tradition that, um, that concerns the impact of India on China. I'll perhaps take a moment here to say something that is probably obvious to, to you and to the listeners, but is still striking to me. Um, nowadays, China is a superpower. Mm-hmm. And I guess nowadays, that, that's at least my impression from the Indian press when I visited India, the Indians are looking up to China. They hope to be as strong as China, yes. China is the yardstick by which contemporary Indians measure their own development. Uh, I think that I'm wrong. Uh, China is so, so big, so strong, India is uh, trying to catch up. But it is interesting that historically speaking, India has had a tremendous impact upon China. Where it is unclear at all whether China ever influenced India. Mm. Even, even, even think about, you know, basic things like translation. We know thousands upon thousands of Sanskrit scriptures or Pali scriptures or scriptures in Indian languages that were translated into Chinese and they influenced every aspect of uh, Chinese lives from mathematics and linguistics, material culture, literature, fiction. And it is not clear whether ever any Chinese book 
was translated into an Indian language. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, I mean, there is a tradition that Xuanzang, the, the, the Chinese monk, trans- was ordered by the Chinese emperor to translate the Tao Te Ching, the Taoist scripture, into Sanskrit. Uh, this is recorded in Chinese writings. But whether he did accomplish this translation, and whether this translation ever made it to India is unclear. So, in fact, India influenced China rather than China influencing India, historically. And the book is, of course, uh, part of this tradition. I guess what is unique about it, or what we've tried to do, is, um, as I've already said, is examine the role, the, 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 the influence, not only in terms of Buddhism, but more broadly mm. upon the Chinese creative arts, the influence of uh, Indian literature yep. through the vehicle of Buddhism on Chinese literature, fiction, on Chinese popular religion, on Chinese Taoism, and also to see how the Chinese tried to recreate, reimagine, or imitate India within their own borders, how they, how they reinvented India in China. I guess that these are the two um, main issues. Sure. Thanks. Thanks. Um, so the first section of the book uh, is entitled Indian Mythology and the, and the Chinese Imagination. And this section you write explores the place of Indian gods and stories about them in Chinese literature. The chapter that you wrote appears in this section and focuses on the Chinese deity uh, uh, Nuja, is that Nuja, yes. Nuja, mm-hmm. yeah, and his Indian origins. So I was wondering. Uh, I wanted to start here, and I was wondering if you could please tell us who this deity was first of all, and secondly, how you go about tracing this deity to India. Yes. So uh, the god Nerja is uh, is a very very interesting god. Um, he's among the most popular gods in contemporary China, uh, and uh, his myth is among the most well known in Chinese literature. It is retold in oral literature and television series and movies and cartoons, not only in China but also in Japan, where he is known as Nataku. And the story is very interesting. According to the legend, this Nerja tried to kill his father. Uh, it is a strikingly Oedipal myth, which is very interesting because we are always told that filial piety is the most important Chinese virtue. And yet here we have a god, a very popular god, who defied this, uh, this Confucian ethics, who uh, very blatantly tried to kill his father, and yet his cult is very popular. Mm-hmm. So, so, he's, so the figure of Nejai is very interesting from a Freudian perspective, mm-hmm. and this is something I explore in a book of mine that is forthcoming later this year in the summer. The book is called Oedipal God. <laughs> and in it I deal with this, uh, this Oedipus complex in Chinese literature. But the essay in this book, in, in, in the Indian Chinese imagination, concerns the origin of Nerja. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that like many other Chinese gods, many, many, he's originally an Indian god. Nerja is not a Chinese name. Nerja is a shortened and corrupt Chinese transcription of an Indian name. The, the name, the original Indian name is Nalakubaba. It was 
translated into medieval Chinese as Naja Juba Law, and this was shortened into Naja, and Naja later became Nerja. And in the book I show or demonstrate this evolution mm -hmm. from the original Sanskrit name to the Chinese name. So he's a figure of the Indian imagination, and he was brought to China along with his father, whom I mentioned earlier. His father is Vaishwavana or Kubera. He was brought to China by esoteric Buddhism. Uh, if you want, I can elaborate a little more about esoteric Buddhism and sure. its role in bringing, uh, yeah, in bringing Indian uh, mythology to bear upon Chinese culture. So, so I, I'm going, I'm straying sideways a little bit to talk about esoteric Buddhism no, no, in China. So, uh, as you know, uh, esoteric Buddhism or tantric Buddhism is a very interesting uh, phase in the evolution of, of the Buddhist faith. And, uh, of course, Tantric Buddhism is very important in Tibet. We all know it. Tibetan Buddhism is essentially Tantric Buddhism. And we also know that Tantric Buddhism is very important in Japan, mm. where we have established schools, Shingon and also Tendai. These are Tantric schools. But somehow scholars, until recently, thought that esoteric Buddhism didn't have, didn't influence China. Mm. And the reason that this, uh, this perception was based upon the fact that in China there is no organized esoteric Buddhist school. There is nothing in China like Shingon in Japan or like Tendai in Japan. Yeah. So somehow the assumption was that Tantric Buddhism passed through China on its way to Japan. Obviously it passed through China. I mean, that's how it made it to Japan, through China. But that somehow in China it left no trace. Mm -hmm. But we are becoming increasingly aware that, in fact, esoteric Buddhism has had a tremendous impact on China. I will pay credit here to Michel Strickman. Michel Strickman was, I think, the first Western scholar in recent decades to pay attention to this, that, that in fact, esoteric Buddhism did influence China, but it didn't influence China by way of uh, an organized school, but rather... Tantric deities and tantric ritual practices permeated Chinese religion and Chinese literature. Mm. For example, I'll give just one example, possession. Uh, uh, we have uh, in tantric literature detailed description of uh, rituals of possessions that are called avesha. And in these rituals, the tantric master summons the god or the ghost into the body of a child. For example, if you have uh, a sick person, yes, a sick person is lying on his sick bed, and so the tantric master comes to heal him. So how does he heal the sick person? I'm sorry if I'm rambling too much. No, not at all. <laughs> so, so how does he cure the patient? He brings a small child, and the small child stands by the bed, and then the tantric master orders the inflicting demon of disease to exit the body of the patient and enter the body of the child and interrogates him, interrogates the, the demon of disease. Mm -hmm. And once he gets his identity clear, once it's the identity and the name of, of the inflicting demon is clarified, he, he exorcises it. He exorcises the demon. So the, the process of tantric uh, possession involves a master and a child. Now, if we look at contemporary Chinese popular religion, we find that the Chinese mediums are always referred to as children. Hmm. Even if they are, they are, you know, they might be 80 years old, but they're <laughs> called children. And 
this was already suggested by Michel Strickman, the process by which they become possessed has been fashioned after tantric ritual. I see. So, oh. so, so in fact, tantric ritual has had a big impact on on Chinese popular religion, on ritual, rituals of possession. Now, what I'm interested in, Michel Strickman was also interested in it, is the role of tantric Buddhism in bringing Indian gods to China. One characteristic of tantric Buddhism, as distinguished from earlier schools of Buddhism, or to be more accurate, to a greater extent than earlier schools of Buddhism, tantric Buddhism adopted practically all Indian gods, whether or not they were Buddhist. So, Shiva and Vishnu, and the entire family, this strange family of Shiva. He has, you know, a son with an elephant head, Ganesha, and uh, another son, Skanda. So, all of the gods of Indian, what we now call Hinduism, not only Buddhist gods, but Hindu gods, were brought to China by esoteric Buddhism, and nowadays we find them in Taoism and in the popular religion. And one example is this Nerja. Mm-hmm. Nerja was brought to China by esoteric Buddhism, and this, by the way, is, uh, can be clearly seen by uh, the gods' iconography. Indian gods, Hindu gods originally, they, they are often multi-limbed, multi-headed, yes, mm-hmm. very fascinating creatures. They have three heads and nine arms, and each arm holds a different weapon, yes? Right. So when you look upon Nerja in China, you discover that he's multi-limbed, multi-headed, uh, the city of Beijing, what we now call Beijing, uh, during the Yuan period in the 13th and 14th century, it was called Dadu. The city of Beijing has 11 gates. And these 11 gates were identified in the 13th and 14th century with the three heads, six arms, and two legs of the god Nerja. Mm. So Beijing was in fact called Nerja City, or Nalakubara City. So here you have really a striking example of the impact of the Indian imagination on China. The Chinese named their capital after a multi-headed, multi-armed Indian god <laughs> that, was, that was brought to China by from India. And the other essays in this part of the, um, of the book of our Indian and the Chinese imagination, the essay by Victor May, Victor May is really, you know, we should pay him his dues, he's uh, one of the uh, first Western scholars to repeatedly argue for the impact of India on the chi- on Chinese literature. Mm. The impact of Indian literature on Chinese literature. He argues, you know, one we may quibble with this or that argument of his, but, but broadly, I think he's correct. Uh, Indian literature has had a liberating impact on Chinese writing. Yeah. Chinese writing prior to the arrival of Buddhism was mainly historical. Mm-hmm. The Chinese were, and he, he argues this in this book, in, in our book, uh, the Chinese were obsessed with the writing of history. What they wrote was always supposed to be historically accurate. And uh, I always tell my students, if, if you allow me, uh, can I go on? on yes, on, yes, on please, this, please. Uh, yeah, I was going to go uh, on to the Victor Mayer chapter. So. Yeah, so uh, I always tell my students that, uh, as it were, Chinese literature broadened the horizons of the Chinese creative imagination. Mm-hmm. For example, time, time-wise, the Chinese imagined things that occurred, they were confined to human history. Essentially, a 
few thousand years back uh-huh. and the foreseeable future. You know, what happened right. 3,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago with the legendary emperors and a little bit into the future. But in India, time is measured not by human lives, by, by eons, yes? Mm-hmm. Kalpa or an eon. And a eon, you know, is the time that it takes a bird to scratch the Himalayas until they no longer exist, yes? Mm-hmm. A bird that alights on the Himalaya and each time scratches a little bit of dirt. So they, they, and even is the time it can take it to scratch the entire Himalaya, Himalaya into a plateau. So, so, so time became much larger in the mm-hmm. Chinese imagination. Space as well. In China, broadly speaking, space was the lands around China, yes? Perhaps yeah. a few islands of the immortals to the east, legendary mountains to the west, but the, the visit, you know, the recognized universe. But in India, they imagined all of these universes, each visit Buddha, countless, numberless, uh, cosmoses, you know, uh, each with its own Buddha, its own hell, its own paradise. So space was enlarged. And finally, possibilities. As Victor May argues correctly, bien, that is transformation. The ability of the Indian gods to transform themselves. To, to assume at will any shape they like. The Indian gods can appear as female or male, as human or animal. They can change their form. So this really liberated the imagination of Chinese authors. Um, in right. fact, Victor Mayer goes further than that. He argues that the very idea of fiction, mm-hmm. that is to say, of a story that is consciously not real or not true in the historical sense, a story that one creates from his own or her own imagination. This very idea of fiction, he argues, came to China from India. Mm-hmm. So you might say that he's exaggerating a little bit, that in China, you know, we have poetic pieces of the imagination prior to the arrival of Buddhism. Yes. But, but still, I think that there's, no, there's something to this argument. India did influence Chinese literature very deeply, as he argues. Yes. So right, so he seems to be linking it even to this uh, to this uh, Buddhist doctrine of emptiness and the notion that the world is but an illusion. So uh, products of the mind are almost ontologically equal to they have the same ontological status as things we see exactly. in front of us. Right? Well, exactly, exactly as you, as you have said, where the world itself is an illusion or a dream dreamt by some divine creature, then it, it is as true as whatever we dream and whatever mm. we write down. So I, I, I just want to uh, um, ask one uh, other qu- a question before moving on, and that's that, um, so, you, so, I'm, so you're t- saying that it, um, in part it was the Indian um, con- uh, Indian sort of imagination about time and so forth that uh, so attracted or maybe impressed the Chinese. The Chinese are thinking in terms of thousands of years, and as you say, the um, you know the sort of uh, Indian ideas of time are just so much more expansive. But uh, when it comes specifically to uh, to Indian deities, and this is something that Bernard Ford touches on in his chapter two. Um, is it also this this sort of uh, Indian imagination when it comes to deities that attracted uh, Chinese to the Indian pantheon that came with Buddhism? I think so. I will allow myself to 
tell you a little bit about my daughter. <laughs> and this is related to your field of research because you are a Japanese expert. Um, um, my daughter is 14 years old and like many, many young people, young persons all over the world, she's fascinated by uh, Japanese anime and manga. Uh-huh. Yes? She watches online all of these Japanese serials, uh, these cartoons, these animated movies, and then she goes with her friend to these cosplay. Do you know this thing? This sure. cosplay? Sure. They go to this cosplay and they dress up like these characters from uh, from the Japanese um, movies. So in other words, my daughter's her name is Orit, Orit Tautau, Orit Lutau. So my daughter's mind is filled with creatures of the Japanese imagination. Uh uh, And they influence her life. They influence the way she dresses. uh, They influence her social life. Uh, She she herself goes on painting these anime. And I think that something like that happened to the Chinese during during the Chinese Middle Ages. They were suddenly exposed to this plethora of this endless world of Indian mythological creatures that were in every respect fascinating to the Chinese visually. They were so, so interesting with all these heads and arms and uh, their, you know, they always, each Indian god is associated with a mount, with an animal mount. Uh, He may ride, he or she may ride a bird or a cow or a bull, yes, or a lion. And they have all these assorted weaponry and jewelry. So visually, the gods were fascinating to the Chinese. And not only visually, also the legends and stories about them mm-hmm. and their powers, the supernatural powers that are big to transform themselves. So I think this, this had a, a great impact on the Chinese. Not only gods, but also demons. Mm-hmm. These frightening creatures of, of the Indian imagination, they lurk in Chinese popular religion and Chinese literature all the way to the present. Yeah. So, okay. So, um, so, so moving on to the second section, we don't have uh, time, obviously, to um, address every chapter in the book, but the second um, of the three sections in the book is entitled India in Chinese Imaginings of the Past. And this section, you write, explores how Chinese authors deeply concerned with history attempted to fit Indian history and particularly Indian Buddhist history into their conception of the past. Um, so I wanted to talk about chapter five a little bit by um, uh, Shijiru. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and in this chapter, uh, she focuses on a tenth, the tenth uh, century manufacture, manufacturing of 84,000 miniature stupas by um, one particular king, a king of uh, Wuyue. One of the yes. one of the kingdoms of the five dynasties and ten kingdoms period, and this act was based on the legendary actions of the Indian Buddhist king Ashoka. Now, of mm-hmm. course, there's a yes. d- debate as to whether Ashoka really was a Buddhist and so forth, but none of that's relevant here since it's uh, the only our only concern is the Chinese perceptions of Ashoka, and it seems to me that uh, two of the main points here are that these this king uh, is a Chia. Qianzhu, um, asked, Mm -hmm. uh, sort of used Buddhism as an alternative source of legitimacy, alternative to the imperial, to the Chinese imperial system, that is. Uh, And also that uh, she addresses the symbolism of kingship and shows that on the one hand, he was um, modeling Ashoka, but on the other hand, was also borrowing from uh, Chinese sort of 
symbolism connected with kinship. So I was wondering if you could just talk about this chapter a bit. Yes, um, I, I think it, it's a wonderful chapter. Um, I think that all the chapters in the book are wonderful, <laughs> and this is one of them. Um, you're absolutely right. You, you pinpointed the main issues in this chapter. What we see here is that, if you want again, first of all, you see here an attempt by, uh, by the Chinese to recreate an Indian legend or an attempt by a Chinese king to emulate an Indian king, as this king is, has, has been portrayed in Buddhist scriptures. So there is an attempt here, so, so it's very striking. It's not only a religious influence, you might, it is also a political influence. An attempt, uh, Indian kingship uh, becomes a model for Chinese kingship, mm. for the Chinese idea of government. And uh, the Chinese uh, ruler is uh, t- uh, trying to emulate an Indian ruler or is trying to uh, tap the authority of an Indian ruler to justify his own kingship over China, over, over part of China. And this is done by the, by the issue of the 84,000 stupas because Ashoka was supposed to build 84,000 stupas, so the Chinese king tried to do the same thing. Uh, what is interesting, or among the interesting thing from a religious perspective, is that in the, according to the Indian legend, the stupas contained bodily relics. They contained the flesh or bones or what was left, or hairs of the Buddha. Mm-hmm. Whereas in China, these stupas, the 84,000 stupas, and apparently he did produce this, this number of stupas, the, the Chinese king, these stupas contained not bodily relics, but their equivalent, that is to say, sacred uh, Buddhist scriptures that were printed in China. This is related to the invention of printing in China. Yes. Uh, by the way, this is also again related to esoteric Buddhism because the texts were that, that were enshrined in these little stupas, these texts are really tantric mantras or tantric dharanis hmm. that were supposed to be as sacred and as religiously efficacious as the bodily relics of the Buddha himself. So if you want, the Chinese were using their technology, their new technology of printing to do what the Indian king had done previously. Mm-hmm. And they were replacing uh, the bodily relics with uh, the printed texts. But, but clearly, you see here an attempt to recreate India within Chinese borders, to relive or redo what an Indian king had done. Right. One of the things in the uh, chapter uh, that I um, really liked too was the uh, when there's this discussion of the gilt stupas that the uh, king made, um, and they had these four jataka scenes on the four sides, and um, uh, Shijiru suggests that these correspond to the four important pilgrimage sites in northern India. Um, and she writes, uh, engraving the Jataka scenes on the stupa thus transforms the artifact into a portable microcosm of Buddhist India. And, and, um, and then also, um, through, through the scenes of bodily sacrifices from the Buddha's past lives, because all these scenes were of the Buddha sort of, um, sacrificing his own body, uh, the stupa in effect becomes the Buddha's body or more, more or more accurately bodies. So. Yes. Yes. So the, the, the stupa is really, so there's no need to go to India anymore. There's no need to go on a pilgrimage to India when you have such a stupa at home in China. Mm. So, um, 
moving on to the next chapter in the section, um, which is uh, addresses the Shaolin Temple, which obviously uh, you've uh, written about. Um, and uh, in this chapter, uh, Ye De Rong, is that the, mm-hmm. um, he, um, he looks at, uh, he argues that major monasteries in pre-modern China constructed monastic family lines um, on the order um, in line with the model of the Chinese family. Yes, yes. In fact, I think that this, this essay by him is really unique and uh, is really an important contribution to, to Chinese Buddhist scholarship. I don't think that any Western scholar has written about this or has shown what he is showing. Um, what uh, Ye De Rong, by the way, it's an opportunity for me to thank him. He helped me a lot in my own research on the Shaolin martial arts. Mm. Ye De Rong uh, is really, I guess, the leading expert in China on the Shaolin monastery. Uh, and uh, the Shaolin monastery contains hundreds of steles. Mm. And still is with uh, inscriptions, and I think no one in China knows these inscriptions better than him. So he had me immensely when I was writing my book on the Shaolin Monastery. Uh, what he does in this essay, which is, I think no one has done it, is to show that the uh, Chinese Chinese monasteries or the Chinese monastic institutions were modeled after the Chinese family. Uh, firstly, in terms of the vocabulary. And the, and the filial piety values that accompany this vocabulary. So your disciples were your sons, filial sons, and their disciples were your grandsons, your filial grandsons, and your brother, the someone who studied with you under the same master, his uh, students, his, uh, his students were his filial sons, and they were your filial nephews, yes? So the vocabulary of the Chinese family was transferred into the monastic organization. Mm-hmm. That's one thing. The other thing that he shows is something that we usually don't think about. We always think about uh, this idea of uh, the master who chooses a student from, from among the hundreds he might have, and he bestows upon him the ball and the robe, yes? Yeah. The symbols. Yeah, he chooses the brightest student, the student that grasps the teaching, and he bestows upon him the symbols of authority. Right. He is my student. He is qualified to teach. But what Yederong argues is that, in fact, this whole thing of the transmission of the Dharma was very rare if it ever happened. For the overwhelming majority of Chinese monks, they never experienced this good fortune <laughs> of a master bestowing upon them his robe or his ball. It never existed, really. What really counted was the family tree that has been fashioned after the Chinese family, and it determined the managerial positions and the rights for the property of the temple. So, in fact, the Shaolin Temple and the, the Shaolin Branch Temples, they were all very, it was always very clearly marked who was the descendant of whom, and who was the senior descendant of whom, and just like the elder son in the family, that person would be appointed as the manager, yes, and he will have the authority to to regulate the economic activities of the temple. So the, the entire monastic organizations, in terms of authority, managerial authorities, economic power, was modeled after the Chinese family. And yeah, the wrong argument that this is something new, new to China. I see. But, but um, yes. Yeah. Um, 
Okay. In in the um in the interest of time, because I want to ask you about the editing process too. But um, I, I in the interest of time, I think we only have time to look at uh, just one more chat. Uh, of the 10 chapters, but I wanted to mention Stephen Bokenkamp's um, chapter because I thought this this was something I wasn't aware of. Um, in his chapter, being chapter 10, uh, Bokenkamp sure. shows how the Chinese encounter with Sanskrit drove some Taoists to create their own sacred uh, scripts. Um, and Yeah, this is a fascinating chapter, yes. And, and he also... Um, he he notes in the beginning of the chapter that um, originally for the conference, I suppose he was thinking of uh, sort of continuing in the in the um, sort of spirit of Eric Zurcher's continuing um, an examination of the Chinese reception of certain uh, Buddhist and Indian uh, concepts and maybe rituals and looking at sort of how these were transformed in China, but. He concludes uh, by suggesting that what made the greatest impression on Chinese was not necessarily the various ideas and so forth that came with Buddhism, but you know the language itself. Um, so I was yes. wondering if you could just uh, get, yeah. uh, tell us about this chapter. Yeah, it's it's really a wonderful chapter. I think uh, what um, what Stefan Bogenkamp is arguing is that somehow the trapping of foreign language had a mystique to the Buddhists in China. They had a, a, a sort of a sacred, mysterious language that only they knew, that only they controlled. This was Sanskrit, with very strange sounds and strange way of writing, yes. And I guess, I guess this, as it, as it works in religions often, what you don't understand has power, yes. Cultures that you don't understand, the more mysterious, obscure, unintelligible something is, the more religiously potent it is, the more magic power it possesses. So what he argues that the Taoists attempted to create their own uh, language, their own divine language, in imitation of Sanskrit. Mm. They created a language that didn't exist, really. Uh, they called it a heavenly script or a heavenly language. And then they, uh, what is really funny, they also copied or imitated the Chinese Buddhist methods of translating this language. Mm -hmm. So just as the uh, Chinese monks had teams of translators working and translating Sanskrit scriptures into Chinese, so the Taoists created this divine language that gave them authority, divine authority, and this, and then they created teams of gods, actually, <laughs> translated this divine language into ordinary Chinese. Mm. So it's really uh, a striking example of uh, uh, how the Sanskrit figured in the Chinese imagination. How they attempted to to invent another language like it, another religious language like Sanskrit. Yeah. Um. So. I wanted to go on now, and we, we haven't covered all the chapters, but that will be a reason for um, listeners to look the book up themselves and go get a copy. But I wanted to ask a few questions now about the uh, editing process. Um, now, because I assume that most of the people listening to this podcast are involved in uh, academia themselves somehow, and those people might, might be interested to know how one goes about managing um, you know, a bunch sure. of un unruly scholars, um, each of whom may be entirely convinced that he or she is right. Uh, I'm actually, I'm being a bit facetious, but I would like to know, um, 
whether, uh, what sort of whether in the role of editor you tried to steer the author's respective chapters in this or that direction, and uh, whether you got involved with issues of style and so forth. Yeah. Um, okay. Before I answer your question, <laughs> before I address specifically the issue of whether or not we try to shape the essays or steer the authors in a certain direction, I'll just say that editing a book is. Um, I hope my English is, is right. You, you may correct me. It's, it's a hassle, yes? It's a, is it? very, it's a very tiring process because, as you know, publishing your own book is very tiring. Mm. You have to send it to the publisher and uh, you have to find an editor who is interested and then he sends it to readers and you have to be hopeful that the readers like your manuscript and then you have to take care of their suggestions and then you resend it and then there is copy editing and then there are proofs and it's a very lengthy process. There's hundreds of emails going back and forth. Yeah? <laughs> <laughs> so, or with many emails going back and forth. Right. So when you, are, when you are editing a book, it's, it's much harder because... Uh, for, 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 first, of, because first of all, you have to deal with all the authors. You have to make sure that they, each one sends you his chapter on time, and then that they send their revisions on time, and then, then they go according to the guidelines, and, the, and then they take care of the proofs, and, and um, so many technical things. And then you, are, you have to deal with the press, and what happens is, usually, you send it to the publisher, and then he, if you're lucky, he sends it to readers, and then one reader likes essays one, three, and five, but yeah. says that essays two, four, and six are useless. <laughs> He's just <laughs> dropping them. And then the other reader says that essays two, four, and six are magnificent, but essays one, and three, and five are really off the mark. Yeah, wow. we should get rid of them. So, so you have to deal with this as well. So, in light of this difficulty, the most the key thing is you must have a very good friend as your co-editor. <laughs> <laughs> and I was incredibly lucky to have John Kishnick as my co-editor. Um, first of all, he's a wonderful editor. I mean, his English is magnificent, and uh, he's a very skilled editor. He edited Asia Major for many years. But then we really worked harmoniously together, so, so, so this is my, my great luck. Um, I would perhaps add... I don't know if you would like it. You know what? I will add now something, and we will talk later whether we want to edit it out, okay? okay. <laughs> you and me. And this is when we, we, we published the book, and the publisher, which was extremely nice and very helpful, the University of Pennsylvania Press, we were sure. really lucky with them. They were really nice, and they did a wonderful job. They told us the number of words in the book, yes? Mm-hmm. We, you know how it is. They, 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 gave you, they give you a limit. Yeah. I mean, we, we gave them a rough estimate, they gave us a limit. It turned out that we didn't count the glossary and the notes or, you know, and the oh, book wow. turned out to be much larger than originally planned. So they said, you know, you just have to cut, and there was so much to cut. So we started thinking about it. If we ask each author to cut one-fifth of his essay, you know, it just doesn't end. Right. You know, and the authors are reluctant to cut. They, so eventually John gave up his own chapter. Wow. Gallantly. If you notice, it's a very, it's a very curious thing. The book is India and the Chinese Imagination, edited by John Kishnick and Meir Shahar, but there is no John Kishnick essay inside. Yeah, yeah. And the reason is simply because he gallantly, we reached a point in which after, you know, communicating with all the authors and with the press and making various suggestions for limit, we just, there was no way around it. We had to drop one essay. So he gallantly chose to drop his own. Oh, that's kind of him. So, um, anyway, yeah. that's the story. Well, that's the story. Yeah. Yeah. But, but now, more specifically to your question about steering, we didn't make, okay, I think that we did make two decisions. 
first of all, we didn't drop any essay, with the exception of John's essay, <laughs> which mm-hmm. I just mentioned. In other words, we, we, we were not willing to accept readers who said, you know, that essay is not good. I see. We insisted that once we communicated with authors and had their essays on the volume, we, we, we don't, you know, we don't disappoint any author. Right. This we, and this we, indeed we did do. And I think we didn't make a big effort to steer them or force them too much into what we had in mind. Yeah. I think that we, we did give them freedom. We, we, I'm convinced, I'm, you know, for, for, for this interview, I looked again at the volume, and I see that the essays are all very good, each one in, in, in its own right. Yes. Uh, whether or not they perfectly match each other or, you know, go together in the way we would have hoped. Right. So we, you know, we went with the authors. Yeah. We didn't force them to change anything. Right. I see. So, yeah. And and and, uh, and 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 when you um, because the book is divided into these three sections, were these themes that you could sort of had set up for the conference initially? Yes, and uh, yes, uh, I think we, we did have it in the conference initially, and then it went well. The essays fitted, so we kept it. Yes, I see. Okay, thanks for that. Um, so before we move on to the end of the interview, I just wanted to note that the book is dedicated to John McRae, who has a chapter in the book, uh, but who passed away during the, I guess, before the, yes. yeah, dur- before the book was published. Um, That's true. He did participate in the conference. The conference was held in Tel Aviv, and uh, it was a wonderful conference. Also, you know, we, we traveled together to Jerusalem, yes, mm. and um, John was there, and he was healthy, and he was fine, and then I guess a year after the conference, he, he, you know, he became ill, yes. and the book is dedicated to him. Um, you know that... Um, his uh, partner is Jean Natier. Right. Jean Natier is a great scholar of Buddhist, of Buddhist studies, and um, yeah, and she, she's a very good friend of all of us as well. And uh, it was important for us to dedicate the book to his memory. Mm-hmm. So, um, as as a final question, I wanted to ask you uh, what you're working on now. You had mentioned. Um, and also, I wanted you to mention uh, your book that we had d- discussed briefly um, before the before we started the interview. Yeah, so uh, I've I've already finished a book titled "The Oedipal God: The Chinese Nerja and His Indian Origins," and the book is concerned with Nerja, about whom I have an essay in. in in this volume, but the book is concerned not only with his Indian origins, but mostly with his uh, myth and cult in China. And uh, it is an occasion, because his myth is such a striking Oedipal myth, uh, I'll try to examine the question of the Oedipus complex in Chinese literature and uh, the way uh, the, uh, the Oedipus complex works in China with filial piety. I see. Uh, I, I try to argue that, uh, in a way, many Chinese Oedipal tales masquerade as tales of filial piety. Hmm. In other words, violence is hidden. Familiar violence is hidden under a facade of filial uh, behavior. I see. That was I tr- that's what I thought. Now, the other project I'm now beginning, only beginning, is a project on the Chinese 
uh, tutelar deity, uh, you may find it funny, or of horses, donkeys, and mules, <laughs> <laughs> of equine animals. He was called the Horse King, the Horse King, in Chinese, Ma Wang. And I discovered that his cult was really prevalent in late imperial China. That is to say, so long, as long as Chinese relied on equine animals, horses, donkeys, and mules as principal draft animals yes. in agriculture and, you know, the, they, uh, for plowing, for milling, uh, merchants relied on horses, mules, and donkeys to transport merchandise and the military, the Chinese military was mounted. The elite mm. units of the Manchu army, they were mounted. So they were cavalrymen. So this, the god, the horse king, was tremendously important. And all of these groups worshipped the horse king. So uh, it's a book about the horse king. What is interesting about this horse king, and that's tied, uh, that's related to the current project, is that like Merja, the horse king was originally an Indian god who was brought to China by esoteric Buddhism. Mm. You, you may be familiar with the horse-headed Guanyin, the horse-headed Avalokiteshvara. Yes. Uh, one of the striking f- 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 uh, apparitions of Avalokiteshvara is with a horse head. It's called Mato in Chinese, I think Bato in, in yeah. Japanese. Yeah, Bato. And, yeah, and in fact, the Chinese horse king, that's what I'm trying to argue, was uh, his uh, tantric and Buddhist origins were entirely forgotten during the late imperial period. Uh-huh. But I argue that he is, in fact, Avalokiteshvara, the horse headed Avalokiteshvara. So it's a book about, uh, I-, I hope that the book will bring to life all also the ecology of the horse of equine animals uh, during the the late imperial period in China. So this this project will, you envision it uh, you envision the um, the temporal focus to be the late imperial period? I guess. I guess it will be I I don't know what I'll tell you one thing, (laughs) one small thing Yederong, the one who has an essay in the current volume, and he's a good friend of mine, he, uh, if, you, if you don't mind, I'll tell you a small story. He, uh, several years ago, uh, found in an antique market in Beijing a sachet of manuscripts, a bundle of manuscripts from a horse king temple in Shanxi in uh, northwest China. These are the account books of a horse king temple. Uh, over a hundred years, that is to say they go from 1850 to the 1950s to the land reforms when the pen drops in the middle of the notebook. You can see the date on which the temple was destroyed, yes? Wow. Uh, during, during the, and it's very interesting, what is very funny about these notebooks is that you see that the villagers gave money to the temple according to the number of horses or donkeys or mules in their possession. All right. It's an account book, so it's very clear. Uh, each villager, is, uh, they count the number of horses in the, villagers, in the village and donkeys and mules, and people are expected to donate money according to the number of equal in their possession. So part of the, and he gave me these notebooks, Yederon gave them to me oh. to, to research. So, so it, it became my project. So, so part of the book is going to be, or, or I don't know if it's going to be a book, <laughs> I shouldn't be presumptuous, <laughs> or part of the project, part of the project is going to be like a micro history. Of, yeah. of this temple, of this temple and the ecology of the whole skin temple uh, of the whole, of, of the village from which the manuscript hail or so that's part of it. But perhaps part of it will also be like the Nerja project will be more of a literary and historical project on the tantric origins and all the legends and lore 
of this horse king and how they are related to Indian mythology. I see. Wow, that sounds fascinating. Thank you. Yeah. So, okay, well, we will look look for your book uh, this year um, and then hopefully look for another book on horses a few, um, a few years down the road. Um, anyway, thank you very much for speaking with me today and thank you to our listeners for tuning in. And that's and thank it. you. Yeah. Uh, that's it for today's new book in new books in Buddhist studies. See you next time. Mm-hmm.